0: Back. Another episode, Top Two Poker Cast. Joined by Andrew. I swear you say your name. Yeah, there we go. You had to cough during the intro that I have to edit, but you can't say
1: Oh, hey, it's me, Andrew. I thought you were going to freestyle. I was like ready and waiting for you to drop. Dude, um, kind of that that intro kind of gets me pumped to just go freestyle at it. I know. I, I was sitting here with a bag of popcorn, just ready and waiting for you to, to drop a few bars. Um,. It's been a couple months. Uh, I kind of
0: had some. Yeah, since the podcast, huh? Been been a while.
1: Yeah, it's been a while, and we're kind of impromptu catching up o- over the podcast right now. I've kind of been a recluse. Um, I lost my grandma. Uh, she was ninety four. She was ready to go, but uh, it's been been hard. I've been doing a lot of traveling, uh, not a lot of poker. Just immersing myself in work, and then spending time with my wife. Trying to get back emotionally to good, but I am ready to go. Uh, she passed around Easter, one of her favorite holidays, and then spent a lot of time with the family, so it feels good to be back on the podcast grind, and uh, I think it's perfect timing right as we're about to approach summer and World Series. Chase, I really haven't talked to you in, in way too long. What's been going on know. with you?
0: Uh, I mean, more of the same, we did move. We moved into our new place, um, got a lot closer to MGM. I was driving like 45 minutes, no traffic, hour plus with traffic uh, each way. So now we're like no traffic. It's just under 20 minute drive, which is pretty ideal. We have to commute a little farther for like church and uh, social stuff, but it's kind of a trade off we made. It's worth it being close to the games and being able to hop in my car, go check out the games and not spend like two plus hours just to show up and see that the games aren't very good. Then I have to commit like my whole day to being in an MGM. So, yeah, I'm I'm pretty pleased with it. No, that's awesome.
1: So so you moved a lot closer to – is it MGM is mainly where you're putting in play right now?
0: Yeah, that's pretty much the only place I've played. I did play quite a few tournaments because the World Series circuit was at Horseshoe in Baltimore. And then WPT had a stop at Live. So I did travel up there a little bit, but I mean, other than tournament time, I'm just at MGM all the time. Is that where a lot of the better games have shifted or pretty much all the high stakes games have gone down to MGM. Oh, Actually okay. I'll just say all the high stakes games have gone down to MGM. Okay. I can't even get a five ten no limit game up at either of the other two uh, casinos, so Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Do they uh, allow you guys to have a call in list?
0: Or is it something where you
1: have to drive in in person and be present to put your name up on the board? They do
0: yeah, for. I think it's only for the bigger games. I don't know. I've tried to call in for like and told them to put me on two five list, and they're just like, "Oh, just check in for two five. So I think it's only for the bigger games. But yeah, they do have call-ins for at least the games I'm playing. Yeah,
1: I think that's probably the best way to to do it. Is divide it, make the the larger games you know call in since it's a smaller player pool but if you allow people to call into the small games you just kind of get spams of people that don't show up or fake lists and it's frustrating.
0: (laughs) I don't remember if I told you this but sometimes uh, there's oh my gosh what's the name Uh, oh uh, occasionally this guy gets on the list and he puts his name up as Ric Flair so (laughs) (laughs) whatever the floor says like Ric Flair for two five. Everyone goes woo <laughs> <Just> <laughs> woo's wrapped around the room. It's so funny. Cracks you up every time.
1: Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um
0: Well, what else?
1: have did you did you have any success in uh, your documents? Uh,
0: in document no dude, I got my face smashed in. It was just like more of the same. I don't know, tournaments have been pretty nasty to me lately. Uh, have you been I don't, on, think, uh, I don't think I played especially well, but I certainly ran pretty terrible. Have you been on Twitch at all? Uh well since moving I haven't I just got my office set up. This is like one of the first things I've done in my new office. So I've been off Twitch for quite a while. And uh when when the like main event was on a Sunday, so I wasn't streaming on Sunday. So I've probably been off Twitch for almost a month.
1: Oh wow, so this is like perfect timing for us to get back together. Um Get back on uh, our podcast grind And maybe you'll be able to throw something up on Twitch In the next couple of weeks before Making one of your first trips to Vegas
0: Yeah, actually I don't think I'm even going to get to do it Because my folks are coming into town this week So on Sunday I'm going to be busy with them And then the next week I'm going to be out of town i leave on uh, I leave on the 5th I might stream on the 4th uh, June 4th Not May 4th, which would be Star Wars Day which, but, uh, yeah, is now the past. Um. Yeah, we had, we had a Star Wars party. By the way, I don't think I told you about that.
1: No, we, was we awesome. really haven't caught up for a long time.
0: Did you guys all dress up, or what? Did what type of nerd tastic things did you do? Uh, we told everyone to wear their Star Wars apparel. Most people did, but we Tara and I put it on, put on the party. So Tara went all out. She got like she sent out Star Wars invitations that it was like at the Bianchi Outpost and. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she bought these like paper masks from the dollar store that were like one was a couple were Chewbacca, there were some stormtrooper masks, uh there were some rebel fighter pilot masks. It was awesome. Whole thing was fun. Uh my buddy brought his lightsaber, so we had some lightsaber battles. It was great. <laughs> Tera That's made, awesome. Oh, Terra made themed food. There was seven Leia Dip. <laughs> there was Obi-Wan kebabies, Uh BB eggs uh, dark side chips. I mean there's it was it was great. We went all out and it was so much fun. My nerd self just rejoiced that day. I I always like would love to have one of the
1: Stormtrooper like full life size costume outfits, but they're super expensive. It's one of those things that like I really in theory want to have, but I will never spend the money to have. So uh you know, if you ever bink another another bracelet, keep me in mind. It's the like way
0: you can <laughs> Hey, that's an investment, man. That's, that's a Halloween costume you wear for your entire life.
1: Yeah, or just like a casual like Friday, you know. <laughs> Whichever. <laughs> um, but let's let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> your upcoming plans. I haven't talked to you. So you're, you're going to still plan to make two trips out to the series?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I've done the whole series thing, but I can't go for six weeks. It's just too much. So I usually do a June trip where this this year I'm going June 5th through 20th and then going back for the main rent around July 6th through the end of it. OK.
1: Um. Yeah. Why don't <clears throat> I guess why don't you give people some background and some context that maybe don't know you as well uh, as far as your trips to the World Series? Because, you know, I was probably about half of those. I was there for part or all of it. Um. But you've done you've had a lot of different strategies of going to the World Series You've spent the whole time there almost, played a huge package. You've gone, just played one or two events. Why don't you kind of talk us through what you used to do and what
0: you're going to do now and kind of why. Sure. Uh, When I was younger and had like... Spear. Definitely Spear, dude. I had a pretty small bankroll. I remember, I think my bankroll was like $35,000 and maybe like $40,000. And I went to the World Series and just played... Like I had no schedule. I just played like every one K and fifteen hundred every day until I was just about broke. I think I lost like 30,000 that year, which was like the majority of my bankroll. And I just booked one way tickets and just <laughs> saw where I went, and I went straight into the ground. uh so i've I've tried the unstructured thing. I've tried scheduling like exactly what events I'm playing, which days and i thought that that would be really good one year that i did i played the whole 6 weeks of world series and i like scheduled every single day what i was doing i scheduled some off days but it was still just too much and by the end of it i was i was just spent like 3 weeks in you're you're exhausted so
1: Well, and as a footnote, I think when you were doing the one-way and you were, like, much younger and just going for it, uh, you were also burning yourself out because you were playing a lot of cash. Like, I remember you would, like, if you had an early bust, you were jumping into cash games and you're grinding to pretty late at night. Uh, There was a certain gremlin who occasionally would come out and accompany you and make you do lots of crown (laughs) shots uh, and play the Star Wars slot machine. Don't
0: talk to the shooter.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, play a bunch of dice. Yeah, we uh, we had some crazy times, but I think that uh, you had a couple notable caches and you got close a couple times, right? I think there was a. You, will you walk us through besides your bracelet? I mean, you've you've sure. made a
0: couple deep runs. Yeah, I had a couple of close calls. I mean, most notably was a fifteen hundred six max. I think I got like twenty ninth or something like that. That was like years ago, like almost four or five years ago, probably. Um. And I've like done okay in some some of the like Rio dailies and stuff like that, but nothing nothing really sizable. I've never cashed main event. So actually, going into last year, I was probably stuck like hundred thousand plus at the World Series, and quickly got unstuck with one event. So yeah, there's hope. So, well, and and
1: talk to everyone. Um, I mean, it's been different because your bankrolls. You've gone to the World Series. It, Many different bankroll points where it's literally you barely have two cents to rub together, uh, and then now you're you've come to the World Series a couple times and you've I remember you had one year I think you shipped the main event or chopped it at Pendleton, and so you had quite a bit of cash uh, compared to other times when you're going out there. But talk to everyone about you know I know you've sold action before. You're in a position where you don't really have to do that now. Um, what do you feel about that? You know, what are your thoughts?
0: Uh, looking back at your past and what you maybe would have done differently. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of conflicted on the whole selling action thing. Like, I, I'm i pretty firmly in the camp of you should play what you can afford and try to sell as little action as possible. But I do think there are exceptions. For example, if you're just like going through a rough patch, not poker wise, but just like life wise, where you have something that drains your. your your bankroll or your cash, like, and you're a proven good winning player, I think there's a time and a place to sell action. But I do not think that you should get stuck in the cycle of selling action for everything. Um, I do think the World Series might be an exception where you're just playing a massive amount of buy-ins. So selling off a small to medium-sized piece I think is pretty reasonable. But uh, I don't know. I've never been really a big fan of selling action. Maybe that's just because I'm pretty i'm not risk averse like some people um but yeah I, I, I would encourage people to keep as much of their action as they can just play smaller like it's not, you don't have to play the the 1500 and sell 70 percent of yourself when you can play like a rio daily for 230 bucks you know, i i it just doesn't never made a whole lot of sense to me well uh, i' I've, I've tried to sell action you know like when you're sold I think 60 percent so.
1: Yeah. And I think your position you have to keep in mind is a little bit different than maybe um, a lot of other of our listeners, because you were selling action at a time where poker was still, I think it was just post Black Friday. So there's still a lot of money in the poker economy. There's a lot of interest. Um, There's a bigger marketplace. I remember it was just really easy to sell action and buy action back then. It was just kind of the thing. And you were selling at uh, a little bit of a markup. You know, where that definitely, I think, influences and gives you a little bit more incentive because you were a proven winner online at that point.
0: Yeah, I suppose it's a good point. Back in the day, especially, like, I I do... Well, I did, at least at that point, have pretty good online poker results. So, I was selling at 1.3, which is 30% markup, which is a pretty, pretty big price. I mean, back then, the, the all the games were super soft. I think I was pretty justified in that. But it's definitely a different story when now, realistically even good players should be selling at like 1.1. And it's just, I don't know. It doesn't seem as worth it as much of a, a good deal anymore, but.
1: Well, and I think I would say as a caveat from my perspective, like there are, you know, I think it's situational. You have to really, just like with anything in poker, you have to be analyzing what are you giving up for? What are you getting? Um, you know, certain players at certain caliber that might not be able to play some of the events that are so good and so juicy uh at the world series and we're going to discuss the schedule coming up you know if they can get themselves in those events and they're a proven winning player um with the overlays that happen in the world series i think there's some value there right
0: yeah i would agree like there are definitely some that you are just like must play tournaments like if you don't have a bankroll to play the the main event of the world series like that's something you absolutely should sell even if you have to sell 80 percent of yourself like you, you just should try to play it if you're able to sell. So, yeah, I do think there are exceptions. Uh, but I, I think there are fewer than many people think. Like, a, a 1K World Series event is probably not worth selling action for. I mean, if you're doing it for the experience or whatever, it's, it's fine. Or a one-off thing. It's cool. I'm not hating on people that sell action. I just think from a uh, long-term perspective, it's better to get away from that. Or here's a real good play. If you have your buddy in town... Who uh, who needs a buy-in for a Rio Daily? And you're just like, here, dude, go go put a couple of bullets in, and then he uh, final tables it. Oh, that was so gross. And uh, I I feel I
1: I ran a little bit bad towards the end. I got I remember Jackson all against Ace Four went seventy percent of the chips three handed and lost three flips in a row, and then I was out. Um, <laughs> yeah.
0: would you get third <laughs> or fourth in that?
1: I got, I got I got third, but it was a huge money difference. And yeah, you know, those things
0: were super top heavy.
1: You and I discussed it, and we're like, "There's no way against these other two that we're gonna we're gonna chop." <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. If I have any saying this, and I'm like probably majority shareholder here, I'm like, "You you are not chopping right now." <laughs> like, I'll buy more. I'll buy more of your action right now. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, and then I remember I, I get I literally come back in the first hand to get Jacks on the button, and then just uh, open, and then small blind super shoves. And like for whatever they had. Yeah.
0: How about before that one? <laughs> uh, this just, okay let, let me tell you
1: one of the most notable hands is there's this guy who was uh he seemed recreational, but he he fancied himself a player and he was talking, 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 and he at one point was a pretty commanding chip leader, but the you know the blinds are going up pretty aggressively. And I'm chipping up and he he makes some declaration because he we're we're watching a hand of other people play, and it's like seven handed, and he goes Oh, if I 3-bet, I'm never folding. Because someone, I think, 3-bet and folded to a really large 4-bet. And then uh, I end up getting aces, uh, of course, and he, I open, and he 3-bets. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the best. And Chase is just (laughs) sweating from the rail, smiling. Uh, And I I paused for a little bit and put in a 4-bet, and then he 5-bet jams, and we were the two chip leaders. Um, And I just snapped. it. I'm never folding. (laughs) Yeah, and Chase was just fist-pumping and smiling. Uh, I still have a picture of that somewhere. I think it actually might be on our our Facebook page. But that was that was one of my m-
0: more enjoyable hands. I mean, obviously it didn't get that snapped was off. That so epic. I wish you would have won that. You uh, such a good spot. Yeah, but so you cashed for like thirteen thousand and made, made both of us some dough.
1: Yeah. Um, and that's one thing I want to discuss from my perspective. I mean, while Chase was running around and able to put himself in a lot of the World Series events and and get himself in packages. Um, I've played the other side, uh, the smaller buy-in events, and I think that there's some value, and you should really value hunt, um, depending on where your bankroll's at. Usually, like, Binion's has a series with some guarantees. Um, Caesar's used to. I don't know if they're going to do that right You know, this year. I haven't looked at it. But Venetian has their deep stacks that run concurrent to the World Series. And with these smaller buy-ins, you usually get better structures. I would say... Like some of the old, and I'm, I haven't kept up with it, but when they used to have the 350s at Venetian, there's some better value there some of the time than some of the 1Ks at the World Series. Because the 1Ks, you know, if you're short on a bankroll, you're really not going to get that much play out of it a lot of times because uh, you just start so much shorter. So I would say, you know, if you're newer to the series and you're listening to our podcast and you're coming out to Vegas for a couple weeks or even a week, really look online and take a look at some of the structures and just make sure you know what you're getting into I mean obviously the deep stacks are not bracelet events you know there is it's not comparing apples to apples but um, there are some other events going on during that time you know I think four or five series every year that because there's so many poker players in town um, it's something to keep in mind I would say at least there's some value to be found outside of just the the
0: world series I totally agree. In fact, I think the day after I get in, I'm going to Venetian because they have their like two million guarantee, eleven hundred dollar buy-in, which is a bigger buy-in. But they have plenty of like three to six hundred dollar buy-in stuff. That it's also going to be lower variance because the huge fields at the World Series just ratchet up your variance. Being tournaments are so top-heavy when you add in two thousand players and. The prize pool distribution is so top heavy; it's just the variance is massive with those big field events. Um, I also will plug the the Rio dailies, like daily yeah. deep stacks, quote unquote deep stacks that are like turbo blind structure. Those are really good value. We would jokingly call them the wives and girlfriends tournaments because it was like all all the men would go play the uh, bracelet events, and then they'd like hand their wife two hundred bucks to play that one. Uh, maybe a little sexist of us, but we thought it was a catchy little name. Hey, there's no we. You and some of your other poker friends. I'm not a poker misogynist <laughs> like you. Um, stop it. I, there, I, but there's been years that I go out there just to play the Rio Dailies. When I was short on bankroll, I would play like one or two bracelet events, and then I'd be like, okay, I'm firing a bunch of $200 binds into these Rio Dailies because they're just really soft and really good value.
1: Yeah, also, I mean you so,
0: – go, go, ahead, ahead. go ahead.
1: Oh, I was just going to say, yeah. I mean I've I played more of those. I've only played a handful of – Uh, series events uh, three or four and most of them been the employees event Um, but I would say comparative to other tournaments they are extremely extremely soft because you got people that are running through their bankroll or on their last bullets Um, yeah you do have a more casual like oh I came out here as a spectator to see one of the big name pros play you know just fans of poker that just want to play at the Rio and are just kind of in that arena so yeah you get a lot of people and you do get occasionally the wives and girlfriends and just the entourage of you know uh players at a different caliber so they're really good and the one nice thing about them versus some of the other tournaments and i can't stress this enough why i would say they're their really excellent value is they finish in one day so most of us that don't live out in nevada you know we're limited we're coming out there for seven days we're coming out there for 12 days and you know it's always chip in a chair you have some chance but you know, one of my complaints with the way a lot of the Venetian tournaments used to work, and I'm not as familiar anymore, is, you know, they're, they're two days and they're better structure, which is nice in one sense, but you're bagging up sometimes seven big blinds coming back the next day and you're not even in the money yet, um, in some instances. And you're eating up a chance to play two tournaments because you're going a day, day and a half, and you are just have such a short stack the second day. So I'd say, you know, it's, it's really important to... Um, gather some information and plan a well-thought-out trip. You know, Feel free to reach out and email Chase or I. Get us on Twitter. Um, we have a Facebook that we're trying to be more active on and respond to people if you guys have unique questions because I'd say time management is one of the most important skills along with bankroll management uh, when you're going to go out for that short span of
0: summer where there's a lot of opportunity out there. Agree. I think that's all really good stuff. I think there's also... I I really kind of didn't give him much value until this year, but there's, I think, a lot of value in being a mixed-game player at the World Series just because there's so many mixed-game events, and they're not even necessarily the big buying ones. You think, like, oh, these guys going for the player of the year are playing these, like, 10K ones, but there's a 1,500 event for almost every uh, game format, so I'm pretty pumped this year to actually play a decent amount of uh, non-hold'em events. Like, I'm looking at... Uh, couple days after I get in, or I guess midway through my trip, there's a like limit deuce to seven triple draw. Um, there's a eight-game mix. Uh, there's a dealer's choice six-handed. I think that's the day I get in I'm going to play. So uh, Oh, there's 1,500 horse. I'll play that as well. So there's a bunch of these mixed games that look—I I really think that those are soft. It's one of the few times of the year that, A, you have a, a mixed game or a non-hold'em tournament. And B, it's a, like, World Series event. So you get some people that just play it because it's a World Series event. So I think they're quite soft. Oh, my phone, sorry.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And I think that that's why, like, some of the better and some of the best mixed game players um, that play really high stakes, you'll see them in these events frequently cash. Like, I've looked up some of the guys at Commerce that play, you know, the 200, 400, 400, 800 uh, combo games. And they have a lot of caches because it reduces their variance. Because their skill gap a lot of times is is huge um, because they just play these games weekly or, you know, five times a month. But on top of that, the field sizes are, are smaller. You know, you're not getting a 5,000-person field for these events. You know, you're getting a couple hundred, maybe up to a 1,000 in some of the more popular ones. And there's still plenty of spots that are really going to struggle and they, they really don't belong in the tournament. They're being outclassed. Um, and yeah, I think that if you're an accomplished mixed game player, it's it's definitely a good spot to be in because there's just not as many opportunities to play these games in cash or in tournaments um, outside of the series anymore. It's it's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um,
0: Speaking of cash games. So traditionally, a lot of players go to the World Series to play cash games. I've found over the last, like, it's it's just fallen off quite a bit over the last three or four years, at least for the, like, mid-stakes cash games. I, I have no idea what the high-stakes cash game scene is. I think they actually get a decent amount of action still, but the mid-stakes, like, 5.10 10 the limit, up to, you know, like, 25.50, used to be really, really vibrant and, you know, just booming games were going off all over the place, but it seemed like over the last four or five years it's kind of progressively died down on the cash game front. How about you? Have you played many cash games during the series? Uh, I have, but, you know, kind of what, it's kind of interesting.
1: Um, It's kind of a, I guess not a microcosm, but a macrocosm of what happened in Seattle where where Chase and I were from. Poker was really decentralized, and there's probably a good 20 or 30 rooms that used to have three to five to seven games of poker. uh, Lower limit stuff when we were growing up and we were in our early 20s. Um, And it just, it just, died out and a lot of them just uh consolidated into bigger rooms until there's only a couple rooms left up there um what's happened in vegas is when you and i used to come out there uh when we met tommy tommy boo the first time uh he had an idea but i mean like some of his ideas they weren't they weren't crazy they were really i mean he had a, a different he was super nitty he he you know had a lot of super nitty ideas but one of the things he said is you know, a person can do a lot better running around to some of these smaller limit games at back then. There was like the Palms had three table room that closed, um, you know, Tropicana. There was a bunch of places that used to have poker where you you wouldn't deal with professionals or nearly as many because they're lower limit rooms. And I used to do that, like go play it uh, like Planet Hollywood and stuff because you get a lot more social games from the small to mid stakes games and those just make better games because people are like buying each other drinks and having a good time and they're just hanging out at their hotel before they go out. Uh, But yeah, I mean, living in Vegas and traveling to Vegas, I lived in Vegas for two years when I worked at the Wynn. I would say that... it's, it's so extreme because a lot of these rooms have consolidated right now. I think you've pretty much got the win. Venetian has downsized. You've got Aria is still vibrant and full of a lot of games. Bellagio. And outside of Bellagio, Aria, the win, um, Orleans, if you're a local, there's really not a ton of places t- that have 10 to 15 table rooms or bigger. So you don't really have game selection. Uh, Limit Hold'em, which I used to play a lot of, is essentially dead in that town outside of Bellagio it's just so centralized that you get a lot of regulars. Um, even if you don't know them, people that regularly play poker and they're just really not, not making huge mistakes like tourists coming in here and playing the game like they play dice or a slot machine do, you know, you just don't
0: get that as much. And I think that's still true in summertime. Yeah, I agree. I will, let's do one last plug here for satellites, those single table satellites, man, those are really good value. If you're good at sit and go format, um, they're they're pretty darn good. They are variance heavy because they're winner take all, but at the same time you can do some deal making. So if you're also like pretty sociable and skilled at deal making and good at finagling your way into a good deal, those can be some good value. Um they are going to be high variance because they're winner take all, but yeah, and you can they'll frequently people do last longers which are juice free. Um see, so yeah, I think those are a reasonable option. I th- I think they up the uh the rake on those. I want to say last year or so they're not quite as good and you're talking at the rio and, and everyone will have like venetian has their
1: own satellites um which they don't they don't go as easily as they used to go um they used to have an area where they'd be around five to ten satellites at any time now they're kind of a little bit uh it's died down but the rio yeah they have a whole line in a separate area where they're doing satellites pretty frequently uh, especially as a tournament gets into full swing but you you have to be careful. One thing I would add, Chase. Um, I completely agree with what you're saying. The lower buy-in satellites have much higher juice. So if you're buying into like, and I don't. I mean, I don't want to over. I don't want to say something that isn't true. But I know for if you're looking at like a satellite that's like a, around a hundred dollar buy-in, the juice is going to be a lot higher than if you're playing like the three hundred and fifty or a five hundred, um, you know, buy-in satellite. So just make sure you like anything. Look at the structure and. When I was playing satellites, uh, I would always do last longers up to a reasonable bankroll point because, like Chase says, it is juice free. And I think most of you know, but for those of you that don't know, you're sitting down uh, nine, ten handed, and what's you know in Vegas they allow side bets pretty liberally, whereas a lot of other places don't. So if someone will say, "Hey, do you want to do a last longer?" and <clears throat> it's just what it sounds like, whoever lasts longest um, ends up taking down the cash. So. You know, a lot of times multiple people on the table will they'll just get out a bill and they'll say do a $20, $50, $100 last longer. Everyone puts up the money. You stick it under the rail or you put it somewhere secure and you just take a pen and write down everyone's every seat number that's involved in it. And as people break out, you know, you get down a couple people. A lot of times if you get five, six people, the last two will just chop it so you can hedge some of your uh, variants. Um, and it's, it's pretty, it's a really good way to make the satellites
0: juice free and a little bit larger if you're playing some of the smaller Bay-in satellites. Yeah. A little bit of strategy that I didn't think about for years, but, uh, I, I knew some people that would never play in the last longers. And the reasoning was that it created an artificial, like ICM pressure bubble for them because they are winner take all. So, but then you have a last longer. So say you're down to three people and one guy is in the last longer with you. Well, now you have this little like fake bubble where if you outlast this guy, you might win like 800 bucks or 500 bucks. And, but at the same time, the other guy doesn't matter. You know, he's, he can play, as aggro and as pure chippy V as he wants, the guy's not in the last longer. And then you two have this incentive to not go bust. So in some regard, um, you can create some ICM pressure for yourself. But like you said, you can just chop it up if you get in that spot. Hopefully the other person isn't dumb enough to be like, no, we're playing it out for the last longer. But that's something to keep in mind, uh, especially if you only get like, say, four out of the 10 people playing the last longer. You can all of a sudden find yourself in this like ICM spot where you don't want to bust, but you have a hand that's like slightly profitable. So keep that in mind.
1: Yeah. And I've seen a lot of people that are in the, because I, I usually played under like 200 and under satellites. You know, I, I found a lot of people that played poorly, but they would actually adjust their decisions based on the last longer. They'd literally be blinding themselves out, but be like, oh, I got to have a chance that this lasts longer. Um, but I think, yeah, absolutely. There is a, there's the flip side to that, which is a really intelligent player. And if there's a couple of you left in the last longer can exploit that
0: and use that against you a little bit. So keep it in mind. At um, the same time, like you are creating a ICM problem for yourself. So mm-hmm. it, it, the good thing is that people that tend to play the last longer are like the gambling players yeah. that play pretty yeah. poorly and bust quickly. So I, I think it's in the grand scheme of things it's a pretty small concern. Yeah, uh, yeah. absolutely.
1: Um, well, let's go forward. Let's go to some practical aspects of the World Series in Vegas in general. Um, if you you're at this point,
0: let's you want to mix it up a little bit. And go to a floor call.
1: Uh, yeah, we can we can do that. I think this one's gonna be there's gonna be some meat to this one. Um, it's it's up to you. You you guide us.
0: What do you think? Let's go floor call. Let's mix it up a little bit. All right. Let's go. Have you been lately to uh, the Millennium Falcon? No, take me it was there. Like the flat fastest ship in the galaxy.
1: Take me there, it's sir. Did. Take. It did the- <laughs> Take me there now.
0: <laughs> all right, gosh, beam me up, Scotty. Oh, you—you right.
1: you cut that off
0: prematurely, but I'll allow it this one time. All right, there we go. Start the van again. All right. So um, what do you got? We're in the Masai's Lee Cantina.
1: So <laughs> I told Chase that I would—I uh, was going to hit him with something as we were sitting there doing our. Our seven minutes of of hard, dedicated prep work that we do. Um, <laughs> that I was gonna hit him up with something impromptu, and this is more of a concept. And I, you know, this is something I want to put out to our listeners, because, I mean, I certainly have a stance on this, being someone that works in the industry, but I can see a case made for both sides. Um, what do you want done, Chase, when you're in a good game? Let's say it's a game that there's, uh, you know, we'll just say it's a five ten. All right, and let's say it's at a point night, like 3 a.m. It's, you know, seven-handed, and there's a guy who's just verbally abusive, but he is the fish. He's in for eight, nine thousand, and he's just pulling, you know, he's just rebuying pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you want that handled at a casino you play at as a professional? Let's say that you know he's been given a warning about his language about being abusive to staff, and he just won't stop. And that's my question because I get. At Commerce, we've recently taken a different turn. Um, We used to be very liberal. We used to be notorious. And Southern California is notoriously liberal for allowing players to be awful to their dealers and their staff in general. And I've been a part of kind of a cleanup crew where we're moving that line and we're being less lenient. And we're making sure that people behave like human beings instead of animals. Um, But at the same time, I can see... Sometimes my friends are professionals and they're trying to make a living. You know, we make a call that breaks a game uh, and we know it's going to be that way. And the whole table is sitting there, like shaking their head left to right, like, don't do it. We'll put up with like, we'll overtip the dealers. We'll do anything to try to smooth this out. But what do you think uh, is the what do you want done in your game?
0: Well, I might have a kind of unique perspective being in the industry myself previously, um, but I think as far as it goes, like, once they're abusing staff, I I don't have any, like, ill feelings towards staff for intervening. I think that's crossing the line. And, like, I, I just put myself in their shoes. I wouldn't want to be in a work environment where I'm getting talked crap to and my, my boss won't back me up. So I, I do think it's appropriate to take action if, if it's happening to staff. Now, I think if it's, like, player-on-player player violence, I think it should be mostly dictated by the players like uh you know extreme examples aside you know unless a player comes to you with hey this is an issue um i think you should do little more than you know just saying hey calm down guys you know stuff like that um i i think the players should more or less handle their own their own Uh, stuff a lot of that but I I pr- I I can see that
1: perspective, but I I disagree quite a bit, and I'll tell you why. So and and I think I think we have to be careful. I mean, you're using the word violence. Um, I think violence shouldn't be condoned. To, oh yeah, to I mean, more like um, verbal ver- verbal aggression. I think is will just is what you were meaning to say. But you know the problem is, I'll take the devil's advocate to that. Is you're telling me that as a player, I'm sitting here playing four-handed, and the fish is abusing me. Uh, verbally, racially, whatever, I have to bring that to the floor's attention before action is taken, and now the rest of the table is going to blacklist me out of the game for getting the big fish kicked out. I mean, I think it's a slippery slope if players have to police it themselves. I think that there needs to be some sort of... If you're going to be in a room where there's a standard, and if it's a tight standard, I think that's fine, but I think that the same standard and code of conduct that's applied to dealers and staff should be applied to the players because... If seat two can call seat seven every name in the book and go racial and go you know get explosively angry, but he can't do it to a dealer. I mean, you're you're making people witness a similar thing where he's dehumanizing another player, you know. And if if the rest of the players on the table want to keep him there, and you're like, this is ridiculous. This guy's like been shouting at me for all night, you know. I think it just it creates a, a logistical issue there
0: and double standard. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree. I I don't know how you know vulgar you're going in this example, but certainly, like say the fish loses a hand and they beat a little of the opponent's play, like how do you play that? you idiot or something like that you know like i don't I don't view that as like dehumanizing I think once you dehumanize and you start using these very vulgar or like any racial or uh any discriminatory thing, I think is crossing some kind of line now the the question is where do you draw the line and i I don't really know it definitely should be drawn somewhere. And, you know, being someone that's played at commerce before, um, (laughs) it should be drawn before it usually is there. So I, I give you props for, uh, you know, trying to, uh, improve that environment. Um, but yeah, it's a tough issue and like floors should have some discretion. The question is like, where do you, where, where's the starting point on that? And I don't know, it's tough.
1: Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I would love the community, uh, you guys, to give us some sort of feedback and just give us your two cents, because I think it's so hard to know um, commerce and it's coming directly from ownership and management. I'm really proud of of our company taking a stand. And and we were one of the probably, you know, we've been in business for 33 going on 34 years. So our business has evolved uh, and I've only been there over a year and a half. But I've heard stories from players and staff that, you know, have been there for a long time. It used to be extremely, extremely bad and i know we've moved the needle in the right direction quite a bit but it is so hard because there's gray area just like i would say um we had a guy the other night who was drinking quite a bit uh and then he got to the point where he stopped drinking he was drinking water but he really didn't know what he was doing you know in that situation too i think there's a question which is i mean obviously the players want him there in the game he made the decision to come and drink quite a bit it's not like you know, he was taken by surprise or we served him an extra, uh, you know, quad shot for something he thought was a single. I mean, he made the decision to get pretty hammered and he's sitting there. He's playing, you know, the 515 is that a situation where, you know, what do you think? Should the house interfere in that and say, hey, you know what, sir? You I don't think you're you know, know what you're doing or should we let him play? Because he made his own decisions to buy in and be a participant
0: in the game. Man, it's tough. you hit me with tough questions. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean there's some point where like I think legally you have to intervene at some point, right? Yeah, certainly,
1: certainly. And it wasn't to that point, but let's just say it was it was fairly close. And that's I think these are the uh ethically ambiguous situations that uh I'm just curious what most people from a professional standpoint think because you know, I would yeah. say you're someone that's ethical and moral But yet you still understand there that there is an element that's a little bit predatory to the game, Um,
0: right? Well, yeah. And when I think about it as a purely EV decision, like of course I want that guy there, but I'd say I'm I'm farther on the side of you know taking care of this guy and getting him out of the game and creating a better. It also creates a better environment, which has some value for you as well. Um, But I'm definitely more on the side of like I don't want to be, I don't want to be taking advantage of someone. Like certainly I'm not the one that bought him the drinks and made him act like a fool or make bad decisions. But I do think that the this should probably be uh, taken care of earlier than a lot of professionals probably feel.
1: Yeah. And I'm just curious what our listeners, I mean, we've got a following probably definitely under a thousand, but maybe a couple hundred people listen to us um, because these are the tough calls of my job and they're not gaming based decisions, but they, they extremely influence, you know, uh, individual tables and whole areas of of games being played. And uh, (laughs) I think that there's not always a clear line. I mean, I'm paid a lot for my discretion. Um, That's a a big element of my job. But I I think those two areas, you know, it's always hard getting a staff on the same page. And um, I'd say as an industry in general, it's an issue that it's hard to address. You know, I've been on tables where people aren't completely cognizant, but they're still playing and I'm not going to go tell tell a floor, Hey, you need to pick this guy up. Um, cause there is gray area where a guys pretty hammered, but yet he can speak. he's just slurring a little bit and he can handle chips a little bit, but he's slow to make decisions. and He seems like he's out of it. Um, usually I think legally we can let him play in those situations, but, right. um, that, that, and the abusive staff. I mean, those are some of the gray area decisions yeah. that just came into my mind. I want to bring up and I'm just curious. Um, what your thoughts were on it and just get your unvetted opinion
0: one thing one thing i will say to close is that i don't think i've really come across a professional or a serious player that is ever upset with a staff member taking action on something like that it's it, it is understandable although it's not in their best interest and maybe that that is the primary importance to them but rarely do i see that happen and someone just go off on the staff they're more just like uh disappointed that that's a decision that was made but i don't think there's ever any like ill feeling towards staff over that so hopefully that provides you some comfort and you know we would love to hear from listeners like you said and see what they have to say on the subject
1: yeah yeah i I think it's important so i just wanted to kind of blindside you with that and just get your uh your honest opinion Um, I think it's me with more (laughs) puzzles here I know just got deep um yeah right. well we can we can segue do you want to go into emails or do you want to talk a little bit more of uh, the world series I mean hopefully you know if if you're a a poker player and if you haven't made it out to the world series it's a special time it's not what it once was when it was just like um a circus there were so many people out there when the we were able to be out there towards the the tip or the uh I guess the Zenith at the high point of poker's popularity. So we are able to see some pretty ridiculous field sizes and, you know, people making ridiculous prop bets and a lot of other stuff, but it's still really good. It's a great experience. Um, I, I would highly recommend it to anyone that can afford it. And there's a lot of value out there still, I think.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about like lodging food expenses sort of stuff. Um, I think that's something that's not talked about that much, but has a pretty big impact on, Uh, Just your overall win rate, because a lot of people don't calculate that into your into your uh, ROI sort of thing for the summer. And I I mean, it it really depends on what you're going there for. If you're going for the experience, then I wouldn't worry too much about your expenses in that in that stuff. But for people who are trying to really like turn a profit during the World Series, you need to keep your expenses down. So, uh, Drew, what do you think? What what uh, options have you gone with before? Well, I guess you're I mean, more on the recreational side and you're more trying to enjoy it as much as, uh, you know, you're definitely trying to turn a profit, but you go out there to enjoy it as well.
1: Yeah, it was hard because, I mean, um, I was kind of hybrid in between the two uh, almost all my time, even living out there. Uh, I would say we're into the end of May. If you haven't made lodging, I mean... I'll tell you in in a vacuum, if you were planning this in like February and March, which is kind of more optimal and like now what your options are. So I think in general, you've got two types of people. One that's going to be out there short term. And if you maybe have some success, maybe work is flexible. If you make a deep run and you end up getting a five figure or definitely a six figure score, you know, maybe you can extend your stay. Uh, Just realize that the hotels know that especially like the Rio, they set their rates based on occupancy. So as occupancy goes up for an event like 4th of July, uh, new year's Eve, or even just busy weeks. Cause let's say there's a big concert out there like EDC, like the hotel rates at a place like Luxor, that might be 60 bucks a night with tax. You're looking at $80. I mean, it'll be a two to $300 a night hotel. The win being a three to $400 a night hotel will be, you know, a 4th of July is like 2000 for a basic room. So you're going to run into some logistical issues. If you're listening to this podcast and you haven't already made arrangements, um, and I would work my trip kind of around what you can find as far as hotel rates. I mean, if you're someone that's only got a week and if there's not one particular event that you feel you you have to play, like if you're not scheduling yourself for the main event, I would look at hotel rates first because of the convenience factor is pretty huge. If you can't find a strip hotel that's a reasonable rate and all that you can find online, the only other option you really have available to you uh is going to be... Chase, are you there? Okay. Yeah, I'm here. Okay, the only other thing that is going to be available to you is going to be staying at kind of like off the strip, both hotels and or like live-in communities or homes for rent. A lot of people rent homes and rooms. You can look at that stuff up on Craigslist and there's a bunch of other secondary markets for like apartments and condos. It's a good way to go. Um, yeah, I think you the- Air-
0: <laughs> to avoid those times when you are going to see those what's that called like flex pricing or something Um, you are gonna I think uh, gosh I'm talking I'm speaking English Uh, Airbnb Airbnb I think is a good option they're they're really not affected as much by those prices you're going to have a limited amount of uh, places available but I think it's a pretty good option I've done that before and it's pretty affordable I mean you're still going to pay probably like 60 to 80 bucks a night for a reasonable, you know, like one bedroom place. But um, another option is it might be too late in the game for this, but renting a house and splitting it with some people. I'm doing that for, I think, both portions of my trip. Um, that's a really good option. Of course, you have to have people that are willing to do that to put up the money up front. And, you know, you don't want to be stuck with a $4,000 bill for the whole month, but. Yeah, those are good options as well. There is some convenience factor to being at the Rio, I gotta say. Sure. And and I would say one thing to,
1: to consider too, um, is if you're coming out there and you know, not that we'd recommend this, but if you're like coming out there entertainment wise, I mean if you play, just realize any of the lower tiered hotels, so like obviously the Wynn, the Venetian, some of the higher tiered like Aria, some of the best hotels, the five stars. It's going to be really hard to play enough to get a room. Uh, and it's, all, it's going to be cheaper just to rent, you know, just to go out and get yourself, book a room. But if you're staying at a place like... One thing I would do is Chase and I would stay at Hooters, um, which sounds cheesy, but it's behind Tropicana. Their average nightly rate during the year is like $29 a night plus tax. So it's like 30-something a night. It's right across from MGM. It's walking distance. It's not that close to the real. You're going to have to rent a car or take uber or something but at the same time you know if you end up playing 300 400 with a blackjack you're going to get a room comp there so keep that in mind if you do play table games or sports better or anything you've got some opportunity to get discounts i would stay away from anything that's immediately behind the strip or a mile or two outside of the strip because if you've never been to vegas vegas there's the resorts that, are, that make up that little strip of land that are really nice and it's safe and everything kind of outside of that bubble is pretty sketchy. And then you go further out from that, like 5, 10 miles, and you get back into the nicer suburbs that surround Vegas. So, you know, if you're just looking at stuff, you'll find very cheap rooms like extended stays, but they're really run down and they're really not safe. The only other thing I'd say to piggyback off, piggyback off what you said earlier, Chase, about staying in a house, um, you know, I've heard some horror stories. I wouldn't discourage anyone from doing it, but it just makes sure you do things like have an idea of what you want to do with your money like do i wouldn't take like 10k cash and like zip it in my suitcase if you're living with people that you meet on two plus two or some room shares just be careful and think through what you're going to do with your money um you know
0: good little tip for that if you can't get a deposit box at the rio because they're like there's one for every eight thousand people that go there um if you can't get a deposit box what you can do is say you have ten thousand dollars just like buy into the main event or something, or say you bring like $13,000, keep 3000 then buy into like a 10 K event at the end of the, at the end of the summer, because they'll have registration open. And then when you need some more money, just like unregister that event and buy into like a five K later. So you're essentially having the cage hold it. And then you can just get a refund later. Um, it's kind of a way to use them as a safe deposit box, but I've heard of a lot of people doing it. Yeah. I think that's very sound because you just got to be careful. The one
1: thing, uh, you know, that I've ran into, I haven't had theft, but you just, a lot of people have unsecured money and it just becomes an issue. So I would just say, just make sure like with anything you really think it through. Cause a lot of people end up coming with a lot of cash. And I've just heard a lot of bad stories of how someone's has a gambling problem. The next thing you know, like money's missing for the house. No one wants to point fingers at each other and there's no recourse. So just be a little bit careful, but the room shares, if you can't get into the hotels, are a good option if you can rent a car there's a secondary market and vegas has great um really good freeways for accessibility so you don't have to worry about that you can even stay pretty far off strip and almost anywhere because the town is built around the downtown area of las vegas um, the resort area of the strip almost anywhere you stay is going to be 15 to 20 minute drive to rio and to those hotels so you can book pretty far away on a map away from the strip and still have accessibility if you have a car so just keep those things in mind
0: um, as far as food um, i think you can save a good bit of money by simply going to the grocery store after you get into town get yourself like some water some whatever gatorade and also i think that one of the easiest ones is get your if you have a microwave in your room get yourself like microwave breakfasts or whatever you know and some like cliff bars or something to hold you over for snacks, because if you just buy, if you just buy every meal out, you're gonna end up spending like, gosh, you could probably spend eighty bucks a day on food if you if you didn't if you're not careful with that stuff.
1: Yeah, because Rio, what they've done is when you, if you are playing the World Series events and this is your first year, um, or if you're just gonna come there and play cash games or the dailies, whatever it is, Rio puts you in the their convention center. Um, their ballroom areas. So they don't have like a dedicated food in that area. And it's a pretty far walk on breaks and stuff to go into the main area of Rio. And even then, it's casino prices. So it's like 15 to 20 bucks for an entree going to be expensive. You know, their buffet there is probably in the 20, 26, 27 dollars, you know, range. And then they have like a little food cafeteria and they have some other options, but it's still really expensive. Yeah, you're going to run 10 to 15 dollars for a meal. And if you're you want to snack in between, like 5 dollars for a Cliff bar and stuff, it's it's pretty inflated. Think of it like going to a professional sports game. It's not good. So, you want to definitely go to a convenience store and I'd recommend there's a chain of stores called Smith's um, if you're not from the area and I would Google it and I'd get off the strip because even the secondary market right behind the strip and the convenience stores around the strip, gas, everything's more expensive. If you have mobility or if you have a friend who has a rental car, have them take you, you know, outside the strip a little bit and you know, grab whatever you need for the week and bring it back to your hotel or for the duration of your stay. Really solid advice. You'll save a lot of money.
0: Cool. I think that's all good stuff and pretty good guide to the, the summer. Uh, let's hop into some emails. The uh, spicy little... On fire edition! On fire emails. <laughs> let's do it. Uh, all right. The first one is from... It's from Wee, my buddy from Twitch. Um, he says, hey, Chase and Drew. Uh, he's essentially tra- trying to transition from playing MTTs, online MTTs, to live cash games. Cash games in general, but I think he's mostly looking for live cash games. Um, He has a bankroll, and what are some tips that would help in transitioning from MTT to cash games? Uh, Well, I would say, first of all, one of the biggest differences you're going to find is stack size, especially in live games. You're going to run into some deep stack spots where it's going to be pretty common to uh, be playing 200 blinds effective. And if you're coming from MTTs, you're going to be so used to playing this like 10 to 50 big blind range where you really just your mistakes are going to be pretty minimized from those stack sizes. And it's also something where you need to consider bet size. I think that's something a lot of tournament players struggle with going transitioning to cash is that in tournaments, when you're at shorter stack sizes, it's going to dictate your bet size. Having like a 2.5x uh, three bet size is totally reasonable even out of position at a lot of stack sizes but if you're playing live cash games you're 200 big blinds deep if you three bet to less than a pot you're probably making mistakes so you really need to put in some time into working on your bet sizing pre-flop and post-flop um maybe like watch some run-on-ones videos or something like that and uh just kind of hammer out you know how your bet sizing should vary with stack size What do you got, Drew? Ditto. Ditto. No, no,
1: I I think something I would say, and this is something that always kind of, when I was trying to transition, I was playing a lot of MTTs online. I started playing uh, live cash. It just puzzled me. You got to understand that ranging people, even people that seem to play solid, they'll occasionally do screwy stuff. Like, you know, they'll call large three bets with like jack-eight suited because they have a feeling. Because I think that even casual players playing tournaments a lot of times in the mid stakes will play a little bit more reasonable because you've got this... The whole thing about tournament is, unless it's a rebuy, is once I lose all my chips, uh, I'm done for the day. So a lot of people will do things that... It's easier to assign pretty solid, almost concrete ranges once you play with someone for a couple hours. But you'll find like a really solid seeming player will go on a heater and then they'll start. They'll open their range up in a, in a live setting and you'll just be like, wow, this is just incredible like i don't know how they're like three betting or calling you know i have a pretty tight conservative image i don't know how they show up with this hand here you know and i think that's something that happens a lot more in live and you have to calibrate yourself to is that people will do weird things when they're like on a downer live cash when they're on their fourth buy-in in a short amount of time or when they're quote running good and they want a couple pots so just never take those things too for granted you just want to always keep working on your ranges with uh People and realize that that's kind of a, it's a constant dynamic situation that is always changing. And I would say, it fluctuates a lot more rapidly in the smaller stakes, um, live cash games, especially in like a one-two-one-three sense, where you know you'll some of these players play at this level because they literally flop top pair with ace king and they're playing like super solid all day, or they get their aces snapped, or they lose with that ace king hand. And then they just go ballistic and they're just like three betting you with like trash and they just can't control themselves. And I've been occasionally surprised by that. Uh, I don't know, Chase, I know you haven't played like those small, more casual games in a while,
0: but I just see that as one of the biggest things. that's a huge difference. Yeah, I think that's definitely relevant. Um, One more thing that I think tournament players may struggle with is there is no inherent value in retaining your stack. So making like a, like in tournaments, you might make a tight fold because you want to survive. There's no like survive factor in cash games. So, just remember that you're just trying to make EV decisions. All you care about is your equity, and that's all there is in a cash game. There's no surviving. There's no living to fight another battle. You just if you if you lose a battle, you top up. So yeah, I think that those are some good things to work on. Uh, Drew, you want to get the next question?
1: Sure. Um, I don't know the author of this. Do you know it's who uh, this is? It's Mike.
0: Mike F. Okay.
1: Mike writes this question. He said um, he's been told you should play cash games to feed your tournament entries or a tournament bankroll, essentially. He's asking for our view on this. Question comes up because uh, he's been running a little bit salty in cash games, but he's cashed twice in a couple of tournaments. Um, so he's just wondering how that dynamic kind of plays out. You know, I guess the question is, should you be playing cash Uh, as a in general to build your bankroll for tournaments what do you think about that chase
0: so i think this question kind of comes out of what is your overall goal in poker um if you're playing kind of recreationally slash on the side not terribly concerned with like building a bankroll or looking to play more often um i think playing tournaments is totally fine i don't think it's uh either or sort of thing I think you should do what you enjoy the most if that's your goal. If you are, it sounds like Mike's more in the bankroll building phase, then yes, I would push you towards cash games. A, it's going to give you a much better um, indication of where you're at skill-wise. Um, tournaments are so variance-heavy. You can think off two tournaments in a week and think you're the best, or you can go on a epic, epic, nasty downswing and think that you're just the worst player ever. So I think cash games provide a more immediate feedback. And if you're building a bankroll and you're a winning player, that's exactly what you want. You want to just get those immediate profits and not have to wait on your tournament score to come through. Um, I, I think there's also, it's not a bad idea to play a good bit of cash and kind of set aside maybe a big tournament buy-in here or there with your uh, cash game profits. I think that's okay. Maybe set aside like 10% of your winnings and uh, that'll be your like play a couple tournaments fund that a couple juicy tournaments you want to play. So I think you can uh, you can work both in there.
1: Yeah, I think that's all, all very good. I think um, the only thing I would add to that is just keep in mind that these skill sets of playing cash no limit and playing tournament they're similar and overlapping, but they're not the same. You know, there's certain players that are uh, good tournament players and they're much better and they're going to have a higher win rate playing tournaments. It's a better spot for their money if you have a, a small bankroll. And there's certain people that are better suited for cash. So I don't, they're definitely not necessarily mutually exclusive, but they're not always uh, just because you're a good tournament player, a good MTT player, doesn't mean you can always convert that into playing cash and and being a winning player even so i think that we have to have a good sense of where we are as far as our cash game skill and what's offered in your local community or what you're playing online and what size buy-in you're playing as well i think that's a dynamic we always have to kind of evaluate as well
0: yeah, I think that's a great point, especially following the email we got from Wii, where he's transitioning from MTTs to cash, and I, I would guess that Wii is a winner in the, the MTTs that he's playing, whereas now that he's moving over to cash, he I mean, likely if you don't have much cash game experience, you're just not a winning player yet. There's conceptual things like bet sizing and stack size that are just going to take you a while to get a hang of, and you're going to be making some pretty sizable mistakes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there, there definitely can be – you can be a loser in one format and a winner in another. That's a great point. Yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, okay, Chase, I have one last question for you, kind of another surprise since we uh, oh do a lot of this impromptu. Um, if it's really bad and you have no answer, I can just edit it out. Um, this, is, this is the question of the week. If you lived in a city with the highest crime rate in the country and you have children – Realistically, who would you rather have defending your city? Batman or the Punisher? Go.
0: Well, Drew. I'm just going to pour my heart out on this until you I have no idea who the Punisher is. So I'm going to go ahead <laughs> no. and pick oh Batman. my Batman. You, you really don't know who the Punisher is? No. Is that a marvel?
1: Is that a marvel? That's not even a sentence. Is that a marvel? <laughs> What does that sentence even mean? I think I'm gonna drop my first f bomb on on our podcast. My god, <laughs> no, no, you who's, don't. Who's uh Punisher? What is that? Like, I wish I wish we were on videocast so you could actually see my facial expression right now. I'm exasperated. Are you being serious? You don't know who the Punisher
0: is. Uh, is it like a WWE wrestler? That's it.
1: You know, that thing I did to you when you made me watch the Twilight movie where I, I turned. Uh, 90 degrees <laughs> to face you the whole movie and just stare at you and shake my head left to right in disapproval. I'm doing that like worse now because I'm older
0: and more angry.
1: <laughs> I mean, you don't really, you really don't know who the Punisher is?
0: The Punisher? Is, are is you like, screwing oh, me? Wait, wait. Is this the movie like with, um,
1: what's oh, his face? The guy,
0: the guy who plays like Transporter? The badass guy who's like balding? No. Okay. First of all, his name is Jason Statham. Jason uh, Statham, the Punisher. That sounds about right. No. Oh my god. Did you did was your was your answer really? Is he a Marvel as? Um, oh. Is he a Marvel character? Come on. Do I got to spell it out for you? No, but you
1: have to speak it out. I can't read your mind all the time. My gosh. All right. <laughs> stick to, stick to what you know. Uh, I am just like... And again, the internet is not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's, it's a, series a
0: series of, of tubes. A series of tubes? It's a series of tubes. Yeah, I'll stick to the internet. I'll go it, bro. Oh, my bro. gosh. Ah, oh, don't even Ah, bo- oh, you don't even bother. Please, please, please. I know all things. I have a series it's, of a tubes. a series of
1: tubes. All right. And that, folks, is a wrap. Please reach out to us <laughs> while I
0: strangle myself. I please email it. in and tell me what the Punisher is. He still won't tell me. Oh, I'm not God. worried about it. I have Batman. All right, bros. Hit us up, social media. Uh, please like, subscribe, etc. on this pod. That would be awesome. If you guys can leave a review, give us a good review. That would be sweet. Uh, hit us up on Twitter at Top2PokerCast, at Chase underscore Bianchi, at Iamanooblet for Drew. Uh, hit me up on Twitch, and that's about it, bros. Let's get out of here. Oh my gosh, you. How are you alive? What happened to
1: you? I, like, have a vein popping out of my head now. I'm, like, so stressed. How do you... How are you a grown man and you don't know who the Punisher is? This is just, like, inconscionable. Oh my gosh, you. <laughs> if you could see how violently I'm shaking my head right now... Uh,